bit of a brief detour from our study in John's Gospel. But as we prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday, next Lord's Day, I felt it appropriate to go back and to look at this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to maybe consider it again in fresh and new ways as we prepare our own hearts to remember what it is that the Lord Jesus did in the week ahead of us. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text this morning. Lord Jesus, you, you are so worthy of our time and efforts to reflect here this morning upon your word that reveals your life to us. We pray, Father, that you would make the words that you have inspired and written for us and preserved for us to be life and light to our minds and our hearts this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be the one exalted, that you would be the one lifted up, and that the triumph that you initiated and began in eternity past, that you manifest here in the passage before us and in the coming week, culminating in your resurrection, we pray that it would be the defining mark and the hallmark of who we are, that we would live as people of life, and life abundant in you. We pray that you would be exalted in it, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would be our guide and our teacher, our comforter. Doing what the Lord Jesus promised you would do when he left and sent you forth. We pray that this strong ministry of the Father and the Son and the Spirit would be felt acutely, deeply, lastingly in us this morning as we consider Your Word. Jesus, more importantly, as we consider You as it is revealed in the Word. We pray this for Your own glory and for Your own sake. Do with it what You will. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage, At the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkeys and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When He had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. How many times in your life have you looked at something, some scenario, some situation that seemed so right, and then at the very moment that it seemed so right, turned and seemed so wrong? You ask yourself the question, how can they be this close to being so right, and yet so wrong? It's a disappointing reality that we have faced probably more than once in our lives. Something that seems so right, so close, so correct, so in adherence with the Scripture, and then at the same time, something is uttered next that you think, oh no, did they really just say that? I just bought the book. I just downloaded the album. 
Did they really just destroy everything that seemed to be headed in the right direction? So it is with Jesus on this day. It is triumph on the one hand and immediately tragedy on the other. The tension and the closeness to being absolute triumph, to to absolute victory, it's so palpable you can cut it with a knife. And yet the defeat, because it is so close, stings even worse. When we read this account, when we consider the triumphal entry of Jesus here at the beginning of the Passion Week, we have this scene and this scenario of triumph and tragedy playing out exactly that way. It is triumph that hurts and the tragedy is made worse because they are so close. One difference in what we might have experienced in our life looking at a scenario such as that and what we have before us this morning is that there is a true dichotomy, a true division at work here in the text this morning between two groups of people. There are those who are absolutely on the side of triumph and there are another group, a larger group, a more influential group at the moment at least, who are on the side of tragedy. But regardless of how humanity is divided over Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, I want you to know one thing. And if you don't leave with any other thought in your mind than this one, that's okay with me. But you need to be reminded that regardless of how bad it may get towards the end of this story, and by Friday afternoon, no matter how dark it seems, for our Savior Jesus Christ, it can be nothing but triumph. He can do nothing but win. He can do nothing but succeed. He can do nothing but conquer because He is the God-man who cannot fail, who cannot lie. And yet, our hearts mourn as we see the masses that welcome Him with the potential to believe, with the potential to be changed by this triumphant Jesus, for the most part, experience horrendous tragedy instead. Though Jesus ultimately wins, it is a tragic scenario for far too many people in this story, for far too many people in our own lives, for far too many people in our own day. And depending on your perspective, depending on what you do with Jesus, depending on how you align with Jesus, it will determine whether yours is a perspective of triumph or tragedy. You have one of two options this morning. So Matthew presents us with these two perspectives regarding Jesus at his entry into Jerusalem. And as you read through the rest of the gospel accounts and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that these are playing out in one way or another throughout the rest of this, what is called Passion Week. Brothers and sisters, our lives will be directed by following one of these two perspectives because ultimately there can be no middle ground. There is no halfway Jesus. There is no halfway Passion Week. There is no halfway resurrection. It is all or it is nothing. It is Jesus or it is nothing. And it is not just Jesus. It is the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus of the Bible. I said to the young boys yesterday in our trail life meeting that this is the time of year, and perhaps you've noticed it, you adults should notice it more, But this is the time of year that when you go to the grocery store, Newsweek and Time and whatever other periodical or publication you can think of has some new spin on Jesus. There's been some new heretofore unknown detail about his life that's been uncovered. Maybe it's a a, a pseudo gospel that's been uncovered like the Gospel of Thomas. This is the time of year that all of those kind of wackos crawl out of their hole it seems like and they start promoting all of these unsound and unbiblical and untrue accounts of jesus i would say to you your perspective not must not only be the perspective of a triumphant jesus it must be the perspective of a triumphant jesus from scripture alone nothing else 
bears the weight, bears the authority, bears the proof like our Bibles do. And so we have, first of all, in our uncovering of this triumphal entry this morning in Matthew chapter 21, a perspective of absolute victory. A perspective of absolute victory. And from the perspective of Jesus, which, by the way, is the only perspective that really matters, that really counts, because it alone will be the one that is true at the end of the day. From his perspective, his march into Jerusalem, regardless of what seems to happen throughout the rest of the week, is moving toward ultimate victory. Jesus is not deterred, Jesus is not confused, and Jesus most certainly is not concerned. He is confident. He is victorious. And He knows He is, and He knows He will be. R.T. France says this, that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is deliberately dramatic. What we have in Matthew 21 is nothing less than a, a dramatic production of the people which Jesus embraces and welcomes. Because He is driving home a point even now. The time of silence is over. You remember reading in the Gospels so many times when Jesus performs some miracle or gives some great teaching and profound truth, the people are eager to have Him declare who He is and to declare what He's come to do. And Jesus tells them what? Don't tell anyone. Because my time hasn't come. The, 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 the release and the timing of the release of information is just as important as the information itself. And Jesus says, it's not my time. I, I, I'm not ready for that yet. But that time obviously is now over. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, not like the other times He's visited. He is coming this time to declare that He is King. That He is Messiah. That He is the promised One of God. That in Him all the world exists and is sustained. And in Him all the future is held and wrapped up. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and Savior of mankind. Get the picture. For just a moment, Jesus has been preaching and conducting those final weeks and days of His ministry up in the northern regions of Galilee. He's been working there. He's been received there to a greater extent than He would be down south. And you might think to yourself, well, why not just stay in Galilee a little longer? But people seem to be a little more receptive up there. They, they, they seem to be more willing to embrace Jesus up north than they are down around the spiritual capital of Jerusalem. But it wouldn't do for Jesus to remain as simply the middle of a populist movement. Jesus has His sight strategically set to arrive right on time, in the right place, for the right reasons. And so he turns his eyes to Jerusalem from Galilee and he begins to make his way down for the Passover. And as Jesus is navigating those difficult and often narrow Judean paths that led to Jerusalem, he was not alone. He was joined by the masses of worshipers particularly Jewish males who would have been obligated to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at that time of year. And he is, he is set aside so that, so that he is not only going to a crowd, he is traveling with a crowd. A crowd from Galilee, a crowd that had largely been more receptive to him and has, had accepted him. And we'll see more about that in a moment. But he is coming into the city at a strategic time and in a strategic way. And I want you to notice several things about his arrival into Jerusalem that are demonstrated from this perspective of absolute victory. Number one is his authority. Jesus is the authoritative king. 
If nothing else is clear, this is clear as Jesus lays out the terms of his final week in this life. Jesus is not being dictated to by anyone. Jesus is dictating the timing to everyone. Why? Because he is sovereign. Our Jesus is not an impotent, you know, weak, effeminate man as maybe Renaissance art tends to paint him. He is strong, he is sovereign, he is authoritative, he is king, and he's coming to do his business. And you will comply. All the world will comply. Others had pushed him throughout his three and a half years to go ahead and make it known who you are and make it known, but he wouldn't. Why? Because he wanted it done on his own terms. To demonstrate his authority and to demonstrate his power. And in doing so, Jesus shows that he is authoritative, but he shows that he is authoritative in a very specific way. And what way is that? He shows that he's authoritative by basing everything he does on the authority of Scripture itself. I've said it before, let me say it again. Jesus was no rogue rebel doing his own thing. Jesus was concerned to do everything that he did according to the Scriptures. And so even Jesus' final week and even the way he comes in to Jerusalem is rooted and grounded in the authority of Scripture. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, so many years before, had prophesied this, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where is He coming from? Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, He is coming where? Onto the Mount of Olives. And in that day, the Mount of Olives will be split. And again, this has an already but not yet element to the prophecy. There is a day coming when Jesus will return to that mount and usher in His final victory. And that mount will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. Jesus is coming in on that historic ground, on that historic mount, as Zechariah had said he would. It's symbolic. It's it's a picture of what is now present and yet still to come. The authoritative king. The one who can split mountains as well as speak mountains into existence has come. He is here. I don't know. It's not recorded for us to know. What was in the minds of the people that day? Did they understand the significance of the very direction that Jesus was entering? Did they get it? Did they see the prophecy fulfilled? We don't know. But we do know it is prophecy fulfilled. We do know that Jesus is coming to demonstrate His sovereignty. He is determined, not deterred. And He is there to demonstrate His authority, authority that will literally eventually divide mountains. And what comes next is actually comical in the theological world. Because when you read commentators, especially commentators that don't have a view of the Scripture like we believe you should have to take it literally, they start doing all kinds of funny tricks and you're, I'm in my office thinking, did I, I must have gone to the wrong building. I'm at a circus because they're doing somersaults and gymnastics to try to explain everything away that comes next in the passage. Notice what comes next. Jesus comes and He comes into the outskirts of Jerusalem and He sends two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you, which is probably Bethany. And there, immediately there, the the details are specific. He says, immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt will be with her. This is not like the TV preachers that say, "I, I got a word from God. Somebody out there is sick. Well, that's brilliant. 
I bet you're right. Jesus says, no, you're going to go. You go into this village. And as soon as you get there, you look to this direction. And immediately there's going to be a donkey tied right there. And there's going to be a colt tied up with her. This is very specific. This is not, hey, I'm going to shoot in the dark and I'm sure I'll hit something. And people try and try and try to explain away, well, surely there was some sort of prearranged meeting. Surely it's not what we really read. It's all an attempt to erode the authority of the Christ. But Jesus will not be eroded. Jesus will not be explained away. It will happen just as he said. Why? Because he is authoritative and because he's basing his authority on the authority given to him by revealed scripture and truth. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 49 verses 10 and 11. You remember that chapter is where uh, uh, where Jacob is. Uh, and all of his sons are being explained, and all the twelve uh, sons of Jacob are listed, and significant things are said about those men and those tribes that would come out of them. Listen to the words of Genesis forty nine, ten and eleven. The scepter. What is the scepter? It's a sign of authority, yes. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh or the peace of God comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Listen to verse 11. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. You can go to Revelation 19 and you can read a description of Jesus that sounds an awful lot like this. You can go to Matthew chapter 21 and you can find the ruler of Judah who sounds an awful lot like this. Because Jesus is the lion from the tribe of what? Judah. And so going all the way back, Matthew is recording this account of Jesus that is tied to the authority of Scripture and demonstrates the authority of the king. And if that's not clear enough, we can go back to Zechariah and we can read this in Zechariah 14, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus comes as the authoritative one who has fulfilled Scripture from the very beginning to the end of the Old Testament to His own day to the book of Revelation. This is Him. And He has all authority to do whatever He pleases and whatever He is determined to do. And when we read the Old Testament, right? And we see how Jesus is perfectly fulfilling all of these promises. I've got news for the commentators who love to create doubt. I'm pretty sure at this point, if you've read your Bible, Jesus has the authority to call out a donkey and a colt however he wants. And if it says it happened that way, it happened that way. Because this is the man who has fulfilled all Scripture. Providentially, Jesus calls the play now back to Jerusalem. We're back at the ranch, as they say, meanwhile, in the old westerns. Providentially, now Jesus is center stage, and He is the one calling the play. He is asserting His will. Men are not exerting theirs. They're only on the stage because Jesus allows them on the stage. Because Jesus has determined that they would be on the stage. Pilate is not there because Pilate wanted to be there. Pilate is there because Jesus put him there. Caiaphas is where he is because God in his sovereignty has Caiaphas where he is. And Jesus is calling the shots. This is not prearranged. 
This is divine planning. By divine, omniscient, authoritative decree. And so the disciples go in, don't they? And Jesus says to them, hey, look, if you have any trouble with getting that donkey, and they say, why are you taking my donkey and her colt? You just say to them, the Lord has need of them. The Lord, uh, the, 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 the majestic title, the God of Israel has need of them. He has sovereign control over these animals. He knew them when they were conceived. He planned their very life. And he is calling out what is rightfully his. So give them up. The details, again, are so explicit, so clear, that it simply cannot be missed. Jesus is calling the shots and he's doing things that only God could do. Now, that's a good thing, right? We look at this and we applaud this and we say that is good news. Jesus is finally revealing who He is and revealing what He's come to do. Remember, He is a God who brings salvation. and So the salvation for the people of God is at hand and we can begin to get excited because we see Scripture being fulfilled. We see Jesus calling the shots. And then we remember, uh-oh, there's some people who aren't going to like this. Their perspective is not one of triumph, but one of tragedy. And if Jesus makes too much of a stir, Jesus might be killed. And I stop and I ask you the question, but isn't that the point? Isn't that what He came for? Isn't that what He should do? And the answer is yes. It is the point. Jesus should come the way He's coming. Boldly. Obviously. Authoritatively. Jesus, through the prophet's proclamation, is orchestrating the end for which He had come, and that is the salvation of His people. He's not coming on a white stallion as some might expect a king to do. Oh, He will, but not yet. He's humble and mounted on a donkey. And all of these religious leaders of Jesus' day have read those passages. They've read the passages. They know what that means. So here comes Jesus sticking a finger in the eye, as it were, of those religious leaders and their religious establishment. But that's going to provoke them. That's the point. It's supposed to. It's supposed to goad them into doing what they will do. Why? Because Jesus lays down His life. John chapter 10, verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I receive from my father. Brothers and sisters, please do not. Please do not. Go through this week as you think about the crucifixion and as we gather together on Friday night, do not see Jesus as a victim. See Jesus as a triumphant sin-bearer for you. They did not take His life. He laid His life down. That is sacrificial. The other is accidental. Jesus is a sacrifice who lays down His life by His authority so that that same authority will raise that life. That's a Jesus worth rejoicing in. Not a Jesus who is so impotent that He can't defend Himself. This is the authoritative Jesus Entering in such a way that He's calling the shots. He's provoking the right people so that they will take His life that He might take it up again. 
We should mourn this week. We should mourn not an impotent Jesus. We should mourn our immoral beings that caused it. There is a cause for mourning this week and it is our sin. But our rejoicing is in a greater Savior, an authoritative Savior who can do something about it. That's the good news. We see His authority. Secondly, we see His majesty in this broader perspective of triumph. Authority then gives way to majesty as we see the reaction of the people. Say to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's nothing majestic about an impotent or equal God, but only an omnipotent other God. One who is not like us, one who is stronger than us, one who is above us. There's only majesty and glory in that. And so authority now gives way to majesty and we see this Jesus as He is exalted by the people. Because Jesus is authoritative, because He is sovereign, He is also exalted and majestic. People in our country mourn what is happening to the church in America today. It's impotent, it's lackluster, it is dwindling, it is dying in too many places. You know why? They've got a Jesus who's just like them. They have a Jesus who is subservient to them and there is no glory or majesty in that that men would even remotely be drawn to consider him. And yet here's our Jesus sitting on a donkey in fulfillment of Scripture with all authority, with all power. We must promote people's understanding of this. We must call people to understand this. This is not... The Jesus of your own making. This is the powerful, glorious Jesus. We must do away with the liberal commentators, the skeptics, the religious like the Jews in Jerusalem who wanted to do everything they could to diminish Him, to bring Him down to their level, to make Him just another man. When men and women do that, they are rebelling against His very person. His authority. They have a God without majesty who simply becomes an optional add-on for their emotional affinities. This is not Jesus. This is not Jesus. He comes in majesty. He comes with people shouting the right thing. Hosanna to the Son of David. Whether they all believed it or not, I don't know. But they are saying the right things. They are doing the right things. They are giving some indication that at least part of these people knew what was going on. Now it's helpful, I think, at this point to just pause for a moment and help distinguish a point that might be prone to confusion. Many people in many books you'll read, and even myself included, at points in the past, have looked at this and questioned how it is possible. How can this actually be that on Sunday the crowds are worshiping Jesus and by Friday they are screaming for His execution? How is that? It's a massive shift, isn't it? It's not impossible. It's not unthinkable. But it it may not be the massive shift that we think it is. And I'll tell you why. I think we've not properly under, if that's our view, that this is the same crowd that's present Friday that was present Sunday. It's the same one-to-one group. I think we've not read carefully about what's going on and who it is that's involved. If you read, if you back up from Matthew 21 or any point in the gospel that records the triumphal entry and you read backwards and you read where Jesus is coming from, which was Galilee, where he was more accepted where the people did tend to believe more you find that 
reading slowly through that, these are the people he is traveling with. Where had he been? Galilee. Uh, Where are these people coming from, largely? On the paths to the Passover. They're coming from Galilee. They're going to where? Jerusalem, the Mecca of religious fervor in, in Jesus' day. And so as these people are traveling with Jesus, again, the, John says that there were so many things said and done that, that if the world, if we wrote them all down, the world couldn't contain it. It'd be a library too large. And so don't you know that as they're going from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus is still teaching. He's, he's still demonstrating. They're still seeing Wait a minute, this is the Son of God. This this has to be Messiah. So that by the time they get to Jerusalem, these people notice they are not yet in Jerusalem when the celebration breaks out. They're where? They're at Bethpage or Bethany. And here the, the uproar begins. They're not even into the city yet. And so as they are going, they are doing for Jesus what one would do for royalty. They offer their garments as cushion for Him to sit upon on the donkey. They're they're throwing garments in the road and cutting down palm branches, which in Jesus' day were a sign of military conquest and victory and triumph. And so they're casting these things in front of Him and they're crying out, Hosanna, which means, Save now, Son of David. Save now, God of the highest. They know. They're recognizing Jesus. But as they get closer to Jerusalem, they encounter a group who do not see it that way. Their perspective is not one of triumph. Their perspective is one of tragedy. For in Jerusalem, they encounter the religious, the pious, the pharisaical, Jews of Judea. And they are not at all impressed. He has violated their temple. Not once, but twice. He has overturned the tables. He has chased out money changers. He has called them sons of the devil. He has said that they are liars. He has called them vipers. They are not in love with Jesus. And what's more, as he comes into the city and the people are screaming out, Hosanna, save now, son of David, they realize one thing. That when the Roman garrison gets word that this is broken out on the streets, they will send down the troops. And the troops will do what they've always done when the false messiahs came to Jerusalem at Passover. They will slaughter the people in order to put down an uproar. And so these religious Jews in a moment of desiring to stay politically relevant and religiously in power reject Jesus. And so I believe there's a dichotomy, a division between the people who are shouting here the right things and doing the right things and the people who scream crucify him on Friday. I think you have a believing group largely of Galileans who accept what he has said and a group of Judean Jews on Friday who are rejecting everything he has said. But Jesus is who he is. And Jesus is going to do what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus in no way at this point rejects them for their worship. Crowds are going ahead of him. These from Galilee are now running ahead into Jerusalem. And they're still shouting as they go into Jerusalem. Hey, all of you Judean cousins of ours. All of you of our Jewish cousins. Listen up. Jesus has come. Messiah is here. And the thought has to be, oh no, not another one of those. Jewish history is full of men who would ride into Jerusalem at the Passover claiming to be the Messiah. They'd seen it before. They had heard the same shtick before. And yet here comes these Galileans again, the ones that we don't really care so much for. There was a great deal of prejudice between those two groups. 
And here they are again shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Salvation in the highest. Sounds a lot like the angels in Luke 2, doesn't it? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Goodwill among men. It's the same man. It's the same God. It's the same Jesus. He's there. Jesus does nothing to stop what occurs next is not unexpected in this growing crescendo as the crowd swells along the way as they remember the people that He has saved, the dead that He has raised. By the way, which just happened previous to this with His friend Lazarus. They come right through Lazarus' hometown. In fact, the donkeys are probably taken from Bethany where Lazarus lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And so everybody remembers Jesus. How could you forget Him? And they're proclaiming His greatness and Jesus is not telling them to be quiet any longer. And some of them become missionaries and they run ahead of Jesus. Others are staying with Him. And He's receiving their praise in accordance with Psalm 118 to be a victorious Lord. O Lord, do save, we beseech You. O Lord, we beseech You. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed You from the house of the Lord. Hosanna, save us. Save us now, Son of David. They're proclaiming the right things. They're proclaiming it from the right source. The authority of God and the authority of Scripture. The King has come and He has conquered and He is leading His people in triumphant worship. That's what we read about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. I think one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture, Hebrews 2 and 3. Jesus became like His brothers and then turns and becomes the one who leads us in worship. Here He is doing the same thing. He is leading the people. Even though it means His death, He knows it does. He's the one instigating His own death. Jesus is still leading in victory. And we need to understand, brothers and sisters, and we need to proclaim that the way in which God defines victory is not the way we define victory. We need to tell the church of Jesus Christ that God defines victory by the triumph and the reign of the King, not by cultural acceptability. You see, it would have been really easy for these Galilean Jews and Jesus Himself to have quelled what was coming on Friday by simply saying, you know, maybe we miscalculated and we we didn't think about this right. Let's try to find common ground. No. No. That's not it at all. Jesus doesn't define victory in acceptance or popularity. Jesus defines victory in His own way. And that is death that leads to forgiveness and being made right with His Father. These Jews in Jerusalem didn't quite see it the way the Galilean Jews did. They didn't want the scorn of the Romans out of fear falling down upon them. They didn't want the crass and crude and backward nature of those people who believe all that miracle stuff. They they didn't want the, the, the lack of academic acceptance because They believed a carpenter from Galilee, not one who was from the school of the Pharisees. Like them. They didn't want the genealogical problems of accepting a man of of really no birth to speak of, no name to speak of, unlike the Sadducees who had been born into the royal bloodline of the Sanhedrin. So they rejected. And notice what the Scripture says. When he was, when he had entered the city, verse 10, the city was stirred. The city is in an uproar. The word literally means to be agitated. For there to be commotion. 
to be shaken as by a natural phenomenon such as an earthquake or tornado or hurricane. These people are disturbed. I want you to notice this. It didn't take until Friday to get upset. They were upset on Sunday. And it just grew throughout the week. (laughs) Their rejection of Messiah. They are already upset. And they would be more upset by the end of the week as Jesus (coughs) continued to teach and do what He was called to do. Tragically for them, it ushers in the perspective of absolute defeat. The perspective of Jesus and those who came from Galilee with Him was a perspective of absolute triumph. Theirs would be a perspective of absolute defeat. The Jews in Jerusalem certainly expected a Messiah someday, but not one on a donkey, not one from Nazareth. Certainly not one who had not come up through the ranks of the religious establishment. They didn't want a king who was humble and meek. While they placated the Romans, they despised them. And what they really wanted, until they could get it, they would placate them. But what they really wanted in the final analysis was a man to come in with such military force that he would overthrow and destroy the Romans. That's what they wanted. That's what these Jews in Jerusalem wanted. They didn't want a Jesus who would simply get himself killed. What kind of Messiah does that? And oh yeah, by the way, we don't see an army with him. Where's his army? Where are his soldiers that he's going to take out the Romans with? This is just another man who's going to get us all killed. And so they turn on him. (coughs) They commit ultimate treachery after their expectations go unrealized. From a human perspective, the events of Palm Sunday are like a powder keg sitting next to a bonfire that's out of control. It's just a matter of time. These people see that Jesus' entry will harbor nothing positive for them. (coughs) They see it only as an opportunity for disaster. (coughs) So they turn on Jesus, as we know, They cheer his crucifixion. Thanks, Josh. They cheer his death. They want him to be utterly defeated. And as best as they can orchestrate it, and as best they understand this paradigm of victory and defeat, (coughs) they have him killed. They have him in their mind defeated. Garden on Saturdays. Not this time of year. But is Jesus defeated? You know, we can read this account. We can read the Gospel accounts. And we can see all of the events unfold, but it really means nothing until you yourself answer that question. Was Jesus defeated? You can't look at it from Jesus' perspective and say that Jesus, yes, lost. Jesus somehow suffered an untimely and unplanned death. Because Jesus... Laid out the terms. Jesus relied on His absolute authority that gave way to absolute glory that led to absolute victory. Whether these people realize it or not, what do you say about it? What do you say? Jesus is king. Jesus is sovereign. Palm Sunday is a Sunday of victory. But it's not a victory in the way that the world sees victory. 
It's always hard when we look at the way religious, the religious crowd tends to look at this week. It's such a, a week of emotional whiplash. Yay on Sunday. Not sure on Tuesday and Wednesday. Thursday we're getting scared. Friday we're in the pits of despair. And then Sunday, yay again. But according to Jesus, it was victory on Sunday, victory on Monday, victory on Tuesday, victory on Wednesday, victory on Thursday, victory on Friday, victory on Saturday, and ultimate victory on Sunday. You can't see it any other way from his perspective. Jesus wins every single time. Two perspectives, but only one is true. Which perspective will you embrace? Jesus came and Jesus died for your sin. To pay the penalty and the wrath that was poured out upon Him on the cross. You were supposed to be there. You were supposed to bear that punishment. But Jesus took it for you. Will you believe that He came for that victory, for the victory of paying for your sins? May God help us to believe. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your divine plan that cannot fail. Thank You for victory, everlasting, ultimate victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. Even beginning on what we celebrate this day with Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry. Thank you, Jesus, for your authority and your majesty, your victory. Cause us to believe that it was our sin that drove you down this path. But it was a path that you willingly embraced and executed for your own glory. To redeem worthless sinners like me and like everyone who has ever lived. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve what you did, but we praise God and we thank you that you did it to make us acceptable in your sight. You who are our King and our Redeemer. Bless your word now to our minds and our hearts. Change our lives by it. Cause us to live as people with hope in the victory of Jesus. Even as we meditate on and contemplate all of the terrible events that will transpire in the week ahead. We pray this all for His name and His sake. Amen.